You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And tonight we're continuing our study looking together at chapter 5, 1 through 7. That's Revelation 5. You're going to find this on page 1030 of the Pew Bible. One thousand thirty. Hear the word of God. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne." In the previous chapter, the Apostle John saw God the Creator seated upon his throne. And he had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, which are precious stones that give off a majestic radiance. It's symbolic, of course, of God's majesty. It also symbolizes his universal and absolute sovereignty over the entire universe, which ought to be of comfort to those Christians who are suffering any kind of persecution. Everything in heaven merely surrounds and stands in relationship to the throne. And in this chapter, the apostle sees the vision of God the Redeemer, who is lauded by praise. And at the very heart of the scene appears the crucified Christ standing in glory. The Lord Jesus occupies the central position amid everything in heaven. And it shows his absolute preeminence over all things, even though on earth he was humbled. It shows the attractiveness of his person, though on earth he was despised. It shows the utter indestructibility of his life, though on earth he died. He is risen from the grave, and he is ascended to heaven at God's right hand. And thus our Savior, the only Redeemer, reigns in the glory of his redemptive work. And in God's right hand there was a scroll, written both within and on the back. And of course, as you probably know, ancient scrolls were made by joining sheets of papyrus together with glue and water. 
Usually one side was used, but if there was space to be needed, they would write on both sides. So much was on the scroll and God's right hand that it was full of writing both within and on the back. And I think that appears to symbolize completeness. The subject is fully and thoroughly recorded on this scroll. And the question is, what is in this scroll? In God's celestial library, there are at least four volumes of which we are aware. First of all, there is the book of the law in Galatians 3, by which those who rely on their works will be assessed. Paul says in Romans 2, all who've, been, all who've sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So sinners will be scrutinized and judged either by the law of Moses or the law of Adam. This is one of those books that God will open at the great white throne judgment. All the dead, great and small, will be weighed in the balance by what is written in the book. The book of remembrance is the second volume in Malachi 3 that contains the names of those who feared the Lord. It's it's like a register or a record or a chronicle of important deeds that's always kept by kings. You remember how King Ahasuerus read of Mordecai in the book of the memorable deeds. Paul says to the Corinthians, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. The third volume is the book of life, Philippians 4. And in this volume is recorded all those who are redeemed by Christ. It was to this that Jesus referred when he was speaking of the names written in heaven in Luke chapter 10. And often in Revelation, this particular book is described as the Lamb's book of life. And on the day of judgment, anybody whose name is not found there will be thrown into the lake of fire. But there's a fourth volume called the Book of the Living in Psalm 69, from which David's enemies will be blotted out. And of course, this is the most dreadful of curses, as it is mentioned in this imprecatory psalm. David invokes the curse of removing them from the living and cutting them off from life. It's the same book in which the days of our lives are recorded. It's the same book in which the tears and the tossings of the saints are written. And perhaps we could call it the book of providence in which is listed whatsoever comes to pass. <clears throat> so that mysterious scroll in God's right hand, I believe, contains all four. The whole history of the world, which has already been written down. It's a massive scroll. It is a weighty and profound, and I dare say a sacred scroll. So complete is that scroll in God's right hand that it contains all of human history, and it's carefully documented every detail of every day of every life. Your name, my name, our individual and collective histories are all recorded. And it's a reminder that all the designs and methods of providence have ultimately been fixed. In God's book, they were written before the foundation of the world. It's something very difficult to contemplate, but it's true. 
I wouldn't believe it if it hadn't been revealed in Scripture. Ephesians 1 says, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. And the amount of writing on this scroll symbolizes the absolute completeness of God's providence. All the destinies of angels and men have been written within and on the back of that scroll. It's nothing short of God's eternal, all-comprehensive plan for the whole universe. That's the scroll in his right hand. As Matthew Henry observes, the great design is laid. Every part is adjusted, all determined, and everything passed into decree and made a matter of record. The original and first drought of this book is the book of God's decrees. It includes the redemption of believers and the judgments upon unbelievers. And I want you to note the similarities between this scroll and that which Ezekiel beheld. The prophet says, when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So with infinite wisdom and divine counsel and loving attention, God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. And this particular scroll in the right hand of the majestic one on the throne is invincibly secured by the seven seals. So profoundly sacred and secret are its contents that it requires seven seals. And since the number seven symbolizes completeness, this scroll is fully secure. No one can open it. No one in heaven, nobody upon earth, no one under the earth. They can't open it. God's eternal counsel is impenetrable to the eye and the intellect of mere creatures. Deuteronomy 29 reminds us of this. It says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. So only someone with consummate authority could open this scroll. Only someone with ultimate power and might could break its seals. It requires somebody with divine qualifications and messianic credentials. Who could that be? So there's a dilemma. If the seals remain unbroken, the plan of God will remain unfulfilled. For his eternal purpose to unfold, the seven seals have to be broken. And for God's plan to advance as he decreed, the book has to be opened. And I think that explains John's severe disappointment with the apparent absence of one that's worthy. I began to weep loudly, he says, because no one was found worthy to open that scroll or to look into it. And that mighty angel who'd been shouting in heaven was exceptionally strong, you can imagine. Only a mighty angel could issue such a challenge that would reach the entire universe. Who is worthy, he said, to open the scroll and break its seals? And as he said that, he called upon every creature in the entire cosmos to nominate someone who was worthy, even worthy enough to open it. Will anybody step forward? Is anyone able to explain or to execute the counsel of God? The angel is looking for someone of infinite moral excellence and distinction. And no unworthy being could open it. 
No inferior being could look into it. God slew, you remember, the men of Beth Shemesh for simply looking upon the ark of the Lord. (laughs) What mere creature would be worthy to look into the eternal decrees of Yahweh? Through all the ages of history and all the places of the universe, the angel issues this challenge. And you can imagine the anticipation and the suspense of every heavenly being who's waiting to see if somebody worthy steps forward. But no one comes. No creature in the universe is worthy enough even to handle the scroll, let alone to look into it. And it seemed for a moment as if God's plan, including our redemption, was without an executor. The curse would not be removed and the church would not be saved and believers would not be delivered from the curse to come. And God's elect would have no hope. There would be no safeguard and no comfort and no inheritance. And those suffering Christians to which Jesus was really speaking through John in the first century would be left without encouragement and without consolation. You just die. The enemies who persecuted them and trampled God's people would get away with it. And there would be no final judgment to settle the score and make things right, and it was a devastating blow. The absence of one worthy was overwhelming. And that's why he says, I began to weep loudly. The Apostle John was sobbing uncontrollably. Deep was his disappointment. He longed to see the fulfillment of God's purpose of redemption and final judgment. And if nobody would be found worthy, the truths and the secrets of God's book would never be unlocked. History would not be governed in the interest of the church or the good of Christians. According to Hendrickson, there will be no protection for God's children in the hours of bitter trial, no judgments upon a persecuting world, no ultimate triumph for believers, no new heaven and earth, no future inheritance whatsoever. In that case, all men would be in the same lost and miserable condition. All of us would be like those having no hope and without God in the world. And you know something, just when it seemed as if everything was lost, one of the elders broke the silence. Weep no more, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I have to tell you, I think this is one of the most profound and dramatic scenes in the book of Revelation. This representative of the church, the elder, sent by God with consolation for the Apostle John. He himself, the elder, needed redemption, so he was glad to announce it. And it's fascinating, isn't it? The symbolism of Revelation shows that God heralds truth through sinners. In Ephesians 3, Paul highlights this privilege of the saints when he says, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
One of the elders came with this message of comfort, and he says, weep no more. It's the same thing that Jesus said to the mourning widow in Luke chapter 7, or to the grieving family of Jairus in Luke chapter 8, weep no more. Christ is the comfort of his people. He's the divine lifter of our heads. And I think it sounds markedly similar to that description of the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21, doesn't it? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So, in fact, we discover there is one among the woman's seed who is worthy to open the seals. He is, according to this, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, first mentioned in Jacob's prophecy in Genesis 49. There, he said in part, Judah is a lion's cub, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And as blessed as the twelve sons were, Judah is singled out as the tribe from which Christ would come. And the figure of a lion, the king of beasts, is a fitting emblem for the all-powerful Messiah. The greatest member of Judah's tribe assumed the everlasting scepter, and he is the root of David taken from Isaiah's prophecy of the royal seed. Isaiah chapter 11, you know this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So from the descendants of David, the Messiah would come to rule the people. And Jesus, of course, is the promised Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the royal seed of the Davidic line. God's prophecies are true, and his pledge is fulfilled, and his promised son ascended, and this was implied by the elder when he announced he has conquered. Through death, Jesus triumphed over the one who had the power of death. And that's why he came to the disciples, and he said after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He conquered evil. He won the victory over death. He ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. And whatever serves for the good of his church, Christ is able to accomplish it. And of course, the victory was confirmed when John fixed his gaze upon the central figure. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. And it shows how Christ overcame as a lion by being slaughtered as a lamb. Few passages of Scripture, says one, show at one and the same time the majesty and the meekness of Jesus Christ. Jesus is portrayed in this vision like he is so often elsewhere as the Lamb of God. Isaiah the prophet said he was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter the Apostle said, You ransomed with precious blood like that of a lamb. It's Christ, the Savior, the Messiah of whom the prophets spoke throughout the centuries. And all the books of the Old Testament serve as a record to prepare God's people for the incarnate Son. 
And the Gospels then are given to document the fulfillment of the ancient promise of the seed. And the New Testament books explain the meaning and the detail of all the stunning effects of his death. What a wonderful plan it is, salvation by the blood of the regal lamb. And his seven horns symbolize the fullness of his strength to prevail over everyone and everything. And his seven eyes are the seven spirits of God that are given to him without measure. And so we learn that even in heaven, Christ displays the signs of his dying on the cross. John describes that glorious lamb standing as though it had been slain. Do you see what that means? It means that he still bears the marks of his crucifixion. It means that his scars will be forever visible. Our friend and our advocate suffered final judgment in our place as our head. And this he had to do if sinners were to be forgiven. Somebody had to die, as we said in high school, Sunday school. Someone had to die. God loves us. But being inflexibly just, he couldn't leave our guilt unpunished. And to extend his mercy, justice must first be satisfied and his holiness has to be upheld. So Judah's lion and David's root came to die. God didn't even spare his own son. And I think this proves to all the assembled universe that our God is perfectly just. It shows his love for his holiness, his hatred of sin, and his commitment to his word. Paul says in Romans 3, Christ, all this, Christ did all this that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus to whomever his blood is applied by faith, sin is fully and forever forgiven. Let me ask you a question. Is not Christ worthy? Is he not glorious? Does he not deserve our praise? His death satisfied all the demands of justice. His life fulfilled all the requirements of the law. The righteousness of his active and passive obedience is imputed to you. And his ransom is of such infinite worth that it's able to redeem the entire church of every age. And I tell you that he's worthy to open the seals. He's worthy to execute God's plan. And so he went and he took that scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, not by violence, not by fraud, but by the dignity of his person and the merit of his work. And by his own authority and the Father's appointment, he was able to execute the plan. Christ is the fulfillment of all the hopes and the dreams of God's people throughout all the ages. And as our glorified mediator, he's able to rule the universe in righteousness. So I want you and I both tonight to fix our thoughts on the most important work of all, the slaying of Christ. 
That's why Paul told the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything else pales in comparison. He'll always bear the scars. As Paul examined the case as an apostle, as he turned it around in his own mind, he viewed it from every angle. And after everything was weighed, it was his sober judgment that nothing else was worthy of his focus. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Anything in competition with that or opposed to that deserves no credit. Paul resolved to make the scope and the goal of his entire ministry the knowledge of the Lamb who was slain. On what should our thoughts be fixed? On in what should we be immersed as a church? Some other things might be good. But the slaying of the lamb, it's the best. Let's be comforted tonight by the slain lamb who tenderly treats wounded spirits, just as he did on earth. So now in heaven, he extends his compassion to you. He is a mighty king to conquer foes, and he is a sympathetic lamb to care for souls. I would imagine that many souls, even here tonight, are wounded. You can't see the scars on the body, but the souls are wounded. They're hurt mentally, emotionally, sexually, spiritually. And I have to be honest with you, we are not promised full healing here, but Christ is a source of rich comfort. And he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Let's go to him and find forgiveness in the lamb whose blood is oh so precious and fully sufficient. Because in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And he stands there in heaven in our nature as our high priest, and he is our advocate, and he'll never forget his humiliation. The scars will always be vivid and the blood will always be precious. And it makes no difference who you are or what you've done. In him, you can find pardon. And finally, let's trust him who is invested with full control of his father's grand plan. Did you catch it? All events, past, present, future, are under the Redeemer's dominion. The terrible judgments to be meted out upon the wicked are in his hands. The glorious blessings to be bestowed upon the church are for him to give. We can rejoice in the knowledge of Christ who preserves and governs everything. As the psalmist tells us, those who know your name put their trust in you. So knowing the name of Christ means knowing his revealed glory and his divine perfections, understanding experientially his steadfast love and his tender mercy. We learn as believers at the feet of the throne to trust in his wisdom and his compassion and his truth and his grace. 
And as the Spirit highlights the glory of Christ, you and I can rejoice in knowing him. So take heart, Christian. You are, and you will be better off than you can ever imagine. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lamb who was slain. We thank you for the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David who conquered. The regal advocate who triumphed by dying on a cross. And we pray that you'll help us to appreciate him more deeply and to love and obey him more consistently and to praise him with great joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.